Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your servants with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. What can we do to promote world peace? That's a big question, isn't it? That's a global issue. Where would you start to answer that question? What can we do to promote world peace? Mother Teresa, after she had won the Nobel Peace Prize for her remarkable humanitarian efforts, in an interview was asked, what can we do to promote world peace? And her answer was this, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. This may come as a bit of a surprise to you, particularly coming from the world's perhaps greatest, one of the greatest, humanitarians. This seems very odd with our expectations of what would make a global impact. It seems very anticlimactic to have such a domestic solution for such a global problem. And this is the same reaction that we can get to when we now get to this passage in the book of Colossians. We're currently in the series Confident Christianity on the book of Colossians to learn how we can have unwavering confidence in Jesus amidst the waves of our culture. And so far in the series, we've learned that Jesus is the cosmic Lord over all of creation who is redeeming, reconciling all things that is broken and in rebellion to come under his good and sovereign lordship to restore all of creation. That was a, a huge, big picture from chapter 1. And when we redeem, reconcile to Jesus as our Lord, we are a new creation. We have a new identity. We have a second chance in life to live for God, we are told in chapter 2. Now, at the end of chapter 3, Paul tells us how we might put on the new life in Christ actually begins at home. It feels anticlimactic to move from the majestic big cosmic picture of Jesus to the sublime picture of the worshipping church where Jesus is the head to now almost a mundane domestic instruction here in this passage. But we must never underestimate the significance of how the lordship of Jesus governs the mundane affairs of our household. Because we know that the reality is that it's really easy to love people far away, isn't it? It's not so easy to love those who are close to us. And so Jesus transforming love and lordship must begin at home to reorder, to bring new life into family relationships that are closest to us, 
to then have the ability to bring Christ-transforming love and newness of life to relationships that are further away from us. Now, when we read this passage as modern hearers, it doesn't sound very new. If these instructions are meant to be the newness of life in Christ lived out at home, it doesn't sound very new. It actually sounds very old or old-fashioned, ancient or archaic. But here I actually want to point out that in the ancient culture, these instructions weren't ancient at all. It was actually quite revolutionary. See, when we examine these instructions more carefully, we'll see that these instructions were quite subversive to the surrounding culture on what constituted the good life and what makes a good home. The first thing to note on how this passage was subversing the surrounding Jewish and Roman culture was that wives, children and slaves are addressed as people, not possessions. Paul names them and addresses them personally to signify that they are people to be addressed, not possessions. In Jewish and Roman culture, women and children had no individual legal rights because they were considered as things to be owned, not people of equal rights. It's really hard for us to imagine what that would have been like, but women and children were treated as things like possessions like goats, sheep and property. And when we read Paul giving instructions to the wives, children and slaves first, we can read it as Paul saying that the wives and children and slaves have this inferior status that have to be subversive or come under the husband and parents and master. But in that culture, it was actually the opposite of what Paul was actually trying to convey. The very fact that Paul addresses wives, children and slaves and addresses them first before husbands and master was a subversive way to convey wives, children and slaves are people to be recognised and addressed in a public setting, in a congregation. And he addresses them first to convey that they have equal status and dignity as God's image bearer. And that is why he insists to directly and personally address each group in turn. This was, you have to say, very revolutionary because every household code in Greek and Jewish culture, they all had something similar, these household codes, household instructions. But in the Jewish and Greek culture, it was just addressed exclusively to the male head of the house. Women, children, and slaves didn't even have a mention in these codes because wives and children were things, not people. And in that culture, husbands had all the privileges and wives had all the duties. Once we notice that, we also begin to notice that Paul instructs duties for all household members. He instructed duties for wives, children, and slaves, but their duties are conditioned on the duties for the male head of the household. This was totally new and different in the culture at that time. These instructions must be taken as balanced pairs, where Paul gives some profoundly challenging and even subversive instructions to the male household leader. This is to show that although husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters have different duties, they are all equal in value and of dignity. There's not one group that has all the privileges and one group that has all the duties. All have duties but are different. All have the same privileges 
as God's people. And when we read this verse, we can read it as if the Bible supporting domineering behaviour in family relationships. But this is exactly the opposite to what Paul is conveying. By having duty spelled out for both husband and wives, this cuts out domineering behaviour both ways. If wives have spelled out duties and the husband has nothing, then the husband can be becoming domineering of the wife. If the husband had spelled out duties and the wife has nothing, the wife can be domineering over the husband by the silence of duties. The Bible does not support domineering or abusive behaviour. The Bible calls for duties for both husband and wife equally. But the duties are different between husband and wife. And lastly, you'll notice that Jesus reads like a drumbeat throughout this passage. Verse 18, as fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Verse 24, in Christ you serve. Chapter 4, verse 1, you also have a master in heaven. See, submission and obedience is practiced ultimately towards Jesus the Lord over all members of the household. No man can finish reading this passage and think that he is the Lord and master of his little domestic empire. Jesus Christ is holds ultimate authority over the home for Lord Jesus is the Lord and master over all. It is these important revolutionary features that we need to keep in mind as we now look at the three pairs of household instructions. So the first pair are the duties for wives and husbands. Verse 18, wives submit yourself to the husband as fitting in the Lord. What we might find difficult with this verse is the submission word, because the dictionary definition is quite alarming. For example, Oxford Dictionary defines submission as accepting or yielding to superior force or to the will of another person. Naturally, that is one thing that many people fear most. The Greek word that's translated as submit is hupotasso. Hupo means under, Tasso means order. And so the biblical definition of submission in marriage is to voluntarily come under the order of God's design for marriage. The design for marriage is to reflect the eternal marriage between the church and Jesus, such that when the wives are like the church modeling submission, everyone will have an understanding of what it looks like for individuals to submit to Christ. Likewise, husbands are to demonstrate Christ's headship, as we will examine next, to model sacrificial selfless leadership so we better understand Christ's loving rule. Therefore, submission is not expression of inferiority. It's not about competence or intelligence. Submission is an expression of honouring God's good created order for marriage. Wives are to submit to their husband as fitting to the Lord. This doesn't mean if the husbands are the Lord, but submission to the husband is in alignment to God's beautiful design and order of marriage that reflects Jesus' eternal marriage with his people. And it's also important to clarify that these instructions for women to submit to men only applies in the context of marriage. It does not apply in the workplace or in politics. It's too far of a stretch to say that this verse means that female executives managers or elected officials are to submit to their male colleagues or junior staff, 
Women can be CEOs, women can be prime ministers, women can be police officers, whom men must be in submission to their leadership and authority. I just want to emphasize this, that the submission that Paul is talking about here specifically addresses wives and husbands, specifically in the context of committed Christian marriage. So how might a wife's submissiveness practically look like as defined as voluntarily affirmation and embrace of a husband's leadership? This would be a great point of discussion to discuss and share in community groups this week. A starting point as a suggestion is to think that submission involves respect. For it's very difficult to submit to your husband if you don't respect him. So I think respect is probably a good starting point. And this is clear from what Paul says as a part of a longer description of submission uh, in marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. It says, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Wives here is perhaps some homework that you could take home with you. Ask your husbands. Ask her husbands, what makes you feel respected? You never know, the answer might surprise you. For husbands, verse 19, we read, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Decoupling verse 18 and 19 is a significant error. For submission is never advocated without the corresponding demand for husbands to love their wives and to not be harsh. This love is not sentimental. This love is sacrificial, which was expressed ultimately by Jesus at his cross. Husbands are to love in the same way Christ loves sacrificially for his church. This means that like Jesus, you are to move heaven and earth and even hell and sacrifice everything for her good. It is not about making you to be the macho, macho superman. It's simply doing your job as a husband. Now, what might that look like? I think every husband is willing to make that ultimate sacrifice for his wife, as in to take that bullet for his wife, so to speak. But the question we need to ask, are you willing to make those day-to-day sacrifices? Will you hold loosely to your time so you can invest in her? Will you hold loosely to your preferences so you can concede to her? Will you let go some of your dreams so she can achieve hers? Will you be utterly ferocious with your sin so you can be kind and gentle with her? Those are just some questioning examples. It would be great to discuss and share your thoughts and experience of what day-to-day sacrificial love looks like in your community groups this week. And this is not a difficult burden, but a tremendous honour to love your wife that sanctifies her, purifies her. It is an incredible honour to present her wholly before Christ. Further, Paul says not to be harsh with your wife. Again, this will be a great thing to discuss, the different kinds of ways we can be harsh in our behaviours. Here are some examples. Being domineering, controlling. Some guys can be controlling and perhaps be a bit so OCD they give very little freedom for their wives. Making more criticisms than affirmations. When criticisms are greater than encouragements, then your wife will see that as being harsh. 
Another way we can be harsh is not differentiating between mistakes and sins. Mistakes can be frustrating and even costly, but mistakes happen by accident. Sins are committed by deliberate choice. We can be harsh when you can't see the difference between the two. Similar things are said about children and parents. Although the relationship is not identical to marriage, I just want to point again that it's very surprising that children are addressed at all. Children are not treated as equal as adults in the culture of the time, yet Paul honours them by addressing them. Children are just as human as their parents, being the image bearers of God, as much as they are to the parents. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. In obedience to Christ and the good order he designed for families, children are to obey parents' authority. But as before, verse 20 can't be decoupled from verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. This is not everything that there is to say about parenting, but what it does say is that children need discipline and so do parents. Embitter in the original Greek literally is arouse or provoke and it's associated with this word image of a fight or a battlefield, of a combatant or a soldier that is provoked and stirred to accept the challenge, to retaliate. Accept the challenge is at the heart of that word embitter. And when I think about this word, this provoking in bitterness, I can't help as I go through my Facebook feed and go through the news, I can't help but think of the horrific images of what is happening at the moment with the Hong Kong protests, which have now turned to a siege. The Hong Kong authorities have been so heavy-handed that the citizens are embittered. They've been aroused, provoked to accept the challenge, to retaliate against the authority. We too can stir and provoke our children to have an attitude to accept the challenge. A retaliating attitude through constant nagging, belittling or harsh punishment. When parents do these things, children can be discouraged, we read. They can lose heart. They can be dispirited, simply giving up altogether of trying to please their parents. When parents exasperate their children, not only do they turn their children against them, they are turning their children against all kinds of authority. As we looked at the fifth commandment to honour your parents in the previous Ten Commandments series, we learned that the parent-child relationship is to act as a template for other relationships of authority in our lives. With the young families here at our church, we have so much to learn, don't we? We can also share our experiences, tips and mistakes, perhaps in community groups, so that we can help each other grow. But perhaps one simple starting point is to be very quick to apologise when we get things wrong. The charge here in verse 20 and 21 is that children need to be disciplined and parents need to be disciplined. Both have duties in Christ's order for families. 
The third household relationship Paul addresses is that of master and slaves. Again, Paul is subversing the culture at that time. And if it was a surprise that children were addressed, then it was a shock that slaves were to be addressed. Imagine the shock in the Colossian church as the letter was being read out during the church service. Slaves, they're mingling at the back. The well-to families are at the front. The slaves, they're invisible. They're to be ignored in the congregation. Then suddenly, Paul had something to say to them, to say to the people in the back row. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. That was different. Paul begins his subversion by insisting that slaves, no matter what task has been assigned to them, they were serving a higher authority. They should do it with all their hearts as working for the Lord, not for human masters, verse 23. Not only that, they had a reward to look forward to, verse 24. That in itself was not their everyday experiences. Many would have felt lucky to have a day without being shouted at. But Jesus offers eternal hope, which includes justice without favoritism, verse 25. And that is astonishing. Many Romans, maybe even Jews, would have hated that. Because they treated particularly Romans as slaves as human tools. How you treated your slave had no ethical bearing. But Paul rejects that outright. Slaves are human beings, pure and simple. Where they have suffered man's inhumanity, God will bring justice. But Paul is most subversive when he addresses the masters. It must have been very uncomfortable for those sitting at the front of the church to know that the slaves at the back heard every word of this. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. In a culture where slaves were exploited and often paid a pittance, Christian masters are charged to act fairly and equitably towards their slaves. Slavery might seem remote for most of us, but the closest equivalent in our day is the world of employment. It seems like there are many who are facing a lot of pressure at work in our current economic and corporate conditions, and it seems like that pressure is bringing the worst in people rather than the best. For some of you, the best thing for you is to actually maybe to find a new job. But whilst you are in your current job, you might need some encouragement from these verses to be reminded that work, you work to the best of your ability for a higher motivation, for a higher master, your Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that where you have been treated unfairly perhaps, your Lord Jesus knows and he will bring justice. I know that is really hard to see the bigger picture when at work you just get sucked in, vacuumed into those daily issues, crises and dramas before you even have ordered your first coffee of the day. That's why we need to encourage each other each week to draw near, to draw us out, 
to draw us into a bigger perspective of who we are really working for. The times you felt that you had your rights ignored or your rights sacrificed, the times where you felt treated unfairly or not getting the recognition that you deserve, remember that your master in heaven, the son of God who was, is equal with God, willingly gave up his rights to die the death that we deserved. He did this because he was submissive, obedient and trusting of God, his father. And in his obedient act of giving up his right, Jesus was also reconciling all things to himself, bringing about true and peaceful order under his loving rule. And even living out that order can mean costly personal sacrifice of denying our own rights. We can rejoice and delight in the order that Christ has won for us as our Lord and Saviour. There is one who knows exactly what is happening behind those closed curtains. There is one that knows exactly what is happening deep within human hearts. Jesus motivates us to do and be something better than our desire of our hearts would lead us to. He lifts us out of our reactive, instinctive behaviours into a life and a home that is truly different. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the submission and obedience of your Son to die for our sin. For he is able to transform and reorder us as abusers of authority and rebels against authority to become children of God who are loved by you. Give us the motivation and strength to serve and obey Jesus as our gracious master in all of our relationships. As we live out this God-given order, this wonderful fruit of the gospel, we ask that you will transform our families, our churches, our workplaces, and even our whole societies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.